So the um, first reading is the psalm on page 63, and of course this is also a prayer. Uh, that's on page 8 of the zines. Uh, at the top of it it says, a psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah. And he was probably in the desert of Judah when he was fleeing from his own son, Absalom. Tough reading for Father's Day, but you can see not a good time for David, and this is his prayer. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be satisfied, as with the richest of foods, with singing lips my mouth will praise you. On my bed I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. And the second reading you'll see on the Zenus Luke, uh, chapter 18, the first 17 verses. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in the t that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and to give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be, will be exalted. People were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And the third reading is from Philippians chapter 4, uh, verses 4 to 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. 
Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, I'm going to read that again, but this time from Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, the message. And I find the message very helpful to look at it next to the NIV version. So perhaps as I'm reading it from the message, just look again at the NIV message. Sometimes the message just clarifies and brings new light on a well-known reading. Philippians 4, 4-7. Celebrate God all day, every day. I mean revel in him. Make it as clear as you can to all you meet that you're on their side, working with them, not against them. Help them to see that the master is about to arrive. He could show up any minute. Don't fret or worry. Instead of worrying, pray. Let petitions and praises shape your worries into prayers, letting God know your concerns. Before you know it, a sense of God's wholeness, everything coming together for good, will come and settle you down. It's wonderful what happens when Christ displaces worry at the centre of your life. These are the words of God. Again, a, a brief prayer. Grant that, as Martin Luther prayed, Father, grant that I may pray not with my mouth alone. Help me that I may pray from the depths of my heart. Jesus, you taught us to pray to God as a Father in heaven. So we pray to our Father in heaven now and ask you to give us your spirit. Speak to us now for Christ's glory. Amen. So today we're talking about the, the habit of prayer, getting into the habit of praying to God. That is sustained over time, regular, deep prayer and praise to God. And realistically, uh, given our dry world, and I want you to pray on your own, uh, through the watches of the night, and I also want you to pray, or we want you to pray in community. You have his ear. Well, that's true, you have his ear. I love what Randy Alcon says when he says, prayer isn't passive, it's active. It's not doing nothing, it's doing everything. It really is doing something. Prayer isn't the least we can do, it's the most. But first I want to raise a tension that I had in preparing this message, a tension between showing people a vision for a thing and then giving people sort of practical tips to make it work. There's a line you might have heard, it's, it's a buzz in business, so I'm sorry about that. <clears throat> but it goes like, it's a meme, it goes like this, if you want to build a ship, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. In other words, lift up your eyes. We sang it a moment ago. See what you've got before you, right? The endless, the endless immensity of the sea, the details of how to build a ship will follow now, I think there's a half-truth to that meme, and it's an important half. But eventually, you'll need an experienced shipbuilder, you'll need organisation, you'll need assigned tasks, practical people will be needed, practical advice. But still, in the end, um, you know, go collect wood means nothing unless you understand the bigger picture. I think teaching people to pray can be a little bit like that. You can just go straight for the tips, you know, I don't know, I can give you them right now, you know. Choose a quiet place, make it your place, 
somewhere in the sun. Perhaps create a journal, write your thoughts down. Um, check your expectations. You have to write an essay every time. That'll run, run aground pretty quickly. Or a mind map, you know, just get a, a, a pad and mind map your prayers. You know, choose morning or evening, uh, depending on, on the way God's made you. How about be systematic and regular? You know, it's classic, you know, pray for church on Sunday, your work colleagues on Monday, your family on Tuesday, missionaries on Wednesday. I mean, these sorts of things can be just good advice. Get a prayer book, you know, pray the prayers that are in there. It's interesting that the Lord, the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. I mean, that's so tantalizing, isn't it? Teach us to pray. And what did Jesus say? Um, he gave them a prayer. You know, he gave them a sort of model of prayer. He said, he said to them, there's no need to go on and on and on like you think you can twist God's arm. God's not a vending machine. You put in the right amount of money and you get the right outcome. No, no, he's a father in heaven. Ask him to hallow his name. Ask him to usher his kingdom. Ask for his will to be done on earth. You know, forgiveness of sin is daily bread, etc. And the thing about the Lord's Prayer is how simple it is and how short it is. But in this talk, I want to use Psalm 63 to talk about the endless immensity of the sea. I want to give you a vision for praying from Psalm 63. Why you'd want to pray in the first place, recognizing that Psalm 63 is A, someone else's prayer. I mean, there's poetry in Psalm 63, and I'm not a poet. One of the reasons I love the Psalms is because I can, you know, I'm not a poet, but I can pray such powerful prayers by praying the Psalms. It's also David in a hot spot. There's something about the hot spot that might produce something in you that doesn't happen in the mundaneness of life. Nonetheless, Psalm 63, endless immensity of the ocean sea. Look up. Look at this kind of life that could be yours or is ours. Moses did this, by the way, gave them. Israelites a picture before he you know, got them to pray. He says in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 7, he says to the people of Israel, what other people is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him. He's actually near us. In Christ, of course, we can say the same. But in the second half of this talk, I want to give you some thoughts about moving forward. Not so much tips as uh, seven things to be thinking about I'll come to that in a moment, moment's time. Tonight, we continue our series on four habits to shape the heart. Last week, hear his voice here in the, uh, reading the Bible. How are you going? Takes a lifetime. This week, have his ear. Next week, be at the table, which is about presence and care. And then share the table, which is about hospitality and mission. The four habits are hear his voice, have his ear, be at the table, and then share the table. That's the series. So, what do you learn about prayer in Psalm 63 uh, and how will you drink? And the outline's on page 9. What do you learn about prayer in Psalm 63? You'll learn three things. You'll learn life is a desert, but you'll also learn that God is water and prayer is what it means to drink. It's pretty simple. Psalm 63 is about how to love God in a dry world, how to thirst for him. And when you think about the metaphor of thirsting, thirsting, you always thirst the reason for thirsting is you don't have the water. I mean, that's profound, right? The reason you're thirsting is that you don't have the water. Things are dry. That's why you're thirsting. Psalm 63 is an example of prayer of a person who believes he has the ear of God, even as he suffers. 
even as he feels anxiety and fear. So first life as a desert, Psalm 63 verse 1. You God are my God, earnestly I seek you. So personal. You're my God, so expressive. Um, Early I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. Um, That's often translated, my soul longs for you. In the original Hebrew, it's my throat thirsts for you. I am a throat, a soul, a recipient of of the life that God has in me. (laughs) I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. It was real for David, this desert. He really is thirsty, as in for water. He's like, can someone pass me some water, please? (laughs) He's in the desert of Judah, under pressure, possibly possibly from his own son. Gosh, life is complicated. The desert, in this psalm, as in the Bible, is a metaphor for a difficult world. In our difficult world... Where do you go to quench your thirst in this wilderness? For David, it should have been actual water. I'm thirsty, I get water. And yet he says, my throat thirsts for for God, not for water. That's fascinating. So secondly, you learn that God is, is water. David redirects his physical thirst in a deeper direction, in a gobbled direction. You can do this too, by the way. My wife moved from um, America to Australia, away from home. And, uh, you know, you can be here 18 years and people still don't treat you like you're from home. And uh, that's pretty challenging for her even now. But it's fascinating to hear her wrestle with the concept of home, but still actually redirect the thought of home away from, you know, somewhere in Atlanta, Georgia, to somewhere more eternal. In other words, you can have a need, a thirst, and over time work out how you're going to um, redirect that thirst in a deeper direction, in a Godward direction. This thirst that David has is the kind of thirstiness, the kind of longing that tracks down Jesus because he's living water. John chapter 4. Jesus said that to all, a very thirsty woman. What does the Apostle Peter say in reference to Jesus? Though you have not seen Jesus, you love him. And even though you do not see Jesus, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the actual goal of your faith, which is the salvation of your throats, of your souls. We're in the desert. We are, in the the Bible, in an exile between places led by God to God through a desert, waiting for the best to come via the resurrection of Jesus. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. That means that this is not all there is. This is not as good as it gets. The best to come isn't a meaningless bumper sticker, you know, intended to make you feel a bit positive. And yet I think many of us pretend like this is all there is. We're practical atheists, and so we attempt to get used to the desert, you know, finding water wherever we can, wherever those desires can be met. But we're meant for something more. We're meant for God. God is the endless water for your soul, according to the psalm. Jesus Christ said he's living water. 
I love how the psalmist goes on in verse 3, David, because your love is better than life. I mean, that gobsmacks me every time. Because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will eventually be satisfied, as with the richest of foods. See, water, bread. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. David seeks and thirsts and yearns for God's face. But he's not there. He's feeling the absence of God. But he has this expectation that he will see him and will be satisfied. That's how you quench your thirst. Not with actual water. Or with a home or sex. That's the woman caught in adultery. No, the woman at the well. Or the perfect job. Important as those things are in a world in which God has created us. But ultimately, we're made for God. Those things that, you, that apparently will quench your thirst won't, and that's a huge idea in the Bible. So prayer then becomes drinking. Uh, you can pray uh, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. Peter says, Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. I mean, that, that's, a, that's, a memory, that's a memory verse right there. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. I didn't even have to have a tricky song to make me remember that one. And that's worth meditating on, isn't it? What would it mean to, for me to cast my anxieties on him? What does it mean to take my anxieties and do something with them that didn't feel at first natural? What do you do with anxiety? Do you just feel them and let them, let them govern you? And it's like, no, no, don't let them govern you. Cast them on him, and there's a reason for doing so, because he cares for you. And you say, how does he care for me? You've got to answer these questions as you meditate and pray, as you drink. Prayer is drinking is when you let go of all the fears that grip your heart, the desires that govern your life, and you say... Um, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My throat longs for you. James says, uh, you know, you can let the fears control you. He says you covet, uh, you know, you thirst, uh, but you cannot get what you want. That's frustrating. So you quarrel and you fight, you control and you bully. James says you, you have not because you ask not, uh, which is fast becoming a mantra for me in 2019. You have not because you ask not. I'm going to keep saying it in the King James Version because somehow it feels better to me. This, of course, takes time. Uh, this praying thing is a habit that needs to be formed over time. But pressing into God will do it for you over time. David in this psalm has people who seek his life. So fear could fill the room, uh, or he's in the desert, could take up the horizon. But he rests in, in God and in the judgment of God in verse 8 he says, my soul clings to you. doesn't cling to his fears. Your right hand upholds me. And so he cries out to God in pain. I love what Jürgen Moltmann says. He says, for prayer, sighing, complaining and crying out for God. By the way, psalmists, prophets, Israel in the desert. Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. For prayer, sighing, complaining and crying out to God. Not religious performances. And this is not, you know, religious performances. They are 
realistic expressions of the abyss into which people have fallen and to which they discover their own hearts. You know, when you're in the desert, you discover something about your own heart. And so I read Psalm 63 several times over, meditating on the words, and I see David loving God with every part of his being. He's a throat that thirsts, his hands that reach, his lips that praise, his soul that clings, a body that aches, and a mind that remembers. And I ask myself, do I respond to God like this? Why aren't I like this? And one answer is, I'm not David. One answer is, I'm not that good with words. Another answer is that I'm not in the desert. But nonetheless, Psalm 63 gives you a picture of what genuine traction with God might look like. God, by the way, is the immensity of the endless sea. The question then now we turn to is, how do I build a boat? I heard uh, Rowan on this text this morning at 9.30 and at 4 p.m. Rowan did this magnificent, and you should get the download. I should have got him to speak here, but he had to go home. Um, <clears throat> he makes the point that, uh, you know, I could give you tips and that'll just go and make you feel more guilty, uh, you know, when you don't do it. And habits are hard to break, any smoker knows that. And they're hard to form. Uh, but Rowan made the point, and you can listen, download if you like. But he said, you know, it's funny. You know, what we do is we get placed by the Father into the life of Jesus Christ, who is the praying one. He's the true thirsty one who has his thirst quenched in the resurrection. In the grace of God and in Christ Jesus, Christ becomes the one who prays with me and for me. You know, the spirit with sets eyes too deep for words. So I don't want to give you tips to make you feel, you know, okay, I, um, you know, more guilty. Rather, I want to, as Rod did in his message, to place you in the grace of God in Christ. Um, and there in that place, uh, with your thirst quenched, at least by faith now, ahead of the resurrection, uh, you can pray in him and through him. But I also want to leave you with seven um, verbs here from the psalm and other places to help you to pray. And I, my thought is that you take page nine of your zine and you cut it out and you pin it to some board that you look at, a fridge perhaps, because I want to give you these seven verbs because my fear is that uh, you just go home and you guys should pray more. So you've got B only. But what would happen if you had B only but you didn't have, for example, D? You didn't know how to meditate. Or how about you had B and D but you just weren't that good at taking songs and singing them like Be Thou My Vision, perhaps even on your own. Are these seven things, uh, uh, when they're combined, I think can begin to... Uh, establish a praying heart, a habit of prayer over a lifetime. Take them home with you. Here's seven things. Number one, David evaluates. He decides that one thing is better than another. He does that right here in the psalm. Where do you get that? It's in verse three. He says, gobsmackingly, because your love is better than life. There's something better than life, and it's your love. And because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. Isn't that great? <laughs> it's, of course, why Jesus went to the cross and didn't uh, grab hold of his own life. It's why in the book of Revelation, John can say they didn't love their lives so much as to shrink from death. They could actually face death 
because they worked out that there was something better than life. They evaluated. They said, this is better than that. Have you noticed in, in verse 3, it's not just, I know the gospel. Tick. I understand the gospel. Tick. But it's, I've reviewed your love against the alternatives, of which there are many. You see that, don't you? <clears throat> By the way, we do this all day and every day. This food is better than that food, so I go to that restaurant. Uh, this house is better than that house. I'll rent this space. All day, every day, all day, every day, you're evaluating. Why not do it with the one thing that matters? Your love against life itself. Verse 3 is worthy of your meditation. And I believe to have something similar to the passion of David, we need to place the same value on God. He is better than life. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 3, he says, we need the power of the Holy Spirit to strengthen us in our inner being to grasp how high and wide and deep is the love of Christ, a love that surpasses knowledge. So we're going to evaluate your, your love versus life itself. It's going to change everything. Secondly, we're going to be praying. We're going to open our lips time to open our lips in this desert of ours, like David did in his desert then. And I think that'll come in a dedicated times. And people are different, by the way. They really are. And uh, years ago, I gave up sort of being dictated to by very ordered people who, uh, whose every aspect of their life was ordered. And so their prayer times, uh, you know, fit in accordingly. And that's just not my life. But I would assume, though, that finding times and dedicating to them with realistic expectations, perhaps for the journal, as I said, writing a mind map, using a prayer book, great idea. But not just that, but all day and during the day. You know, Paul talks about unceasingly, which I think just means it's a thing that, prayer is a thing that he do, does because it bubbles up from within him. You know, using or being able to use the energy of our moments you know, the anxieties or the fears or the desires, the energy of them to shoot up prayers. You know, I regularly sort of walk along and say, God, save me, you know. Um, you know, um, when I see so much pain in the world, and I see it more often as the older I get, you know, I don't know what it is. I used to think everybody was happy and they didn't need God. Now I'm convinced nobody is. <laughs> um, there's so much pain in the world, and I regularly pray Maranatha, which means come, Lord, we need to be opening our lips. Thirdly, we need to be recalling the gospel. Verse 2 is quite important. David says, I have seen you. I was there. I saw you in the sanctuary. And I beheld your power and your glory. What's he talking about? He's saying, in the desert, I remember the times I went to church. Well, the temple in Jerusalem. Um, you know, I come to church every week. I was just praying um, in the second song. And I took Greg's advice to sing until you sing. And, uh, and I was sitting there thinking, you know, I'm praying this, but it's regular for me. I do it four times on a Sunday. Join me sometime. <laughs> um, but I'm pretty convinced that it's not just the moment that counts. But also what that moment does as it weaves into the whole of my life so that when I find myself in the desert, I've got the words to say. Yeah, so in the moment, she's like, am I, am I really meaning this? I've got my head full of work tomorrow. But, you know, who, oh, Lord, could save themselves? Um, you know, 
Well, I don't do I need to say, yeah, I do, I do, I do, I do. I better pray that prayer of confession. But there'll be a moment when those words or some words like it just mean everything to you. David says, right there in the desert, I saw you in the sanctuary. I beheld your power and your glory. There was something about the regularity of going to the temple that really counts in the desert when the time is right. The commentators of this, of this psalm say that he's recalling a moment, a previous moment in the temple, uh, but uh, the commentators say that there was this moment where he goes regularly, but beyond the gravitas, beyond the ceremonies, beyond the music, he saw something of God. What did he see? He saw God's power and his glory. David couldn't know this, but uh, Jesus displayed God's power and his glory. You read John's Gospel he displayed God's glory when he was lifted up on the cross. That's when God showed his power and his glory in his death and resurrection. And what do we need to do? Recall that moment that's re-exercised every Sunday and maybe even in your own life. Recall that moment deliberately in the desert as an experiential discipline. I saw you there on the cross. It's why we take communion. And we often do it on the first Sunday of the month, but we're doing it next week because next week is be at the table. And so we'll be taking communion next week. So he evaluates, he prays, he recalls, he meditates, and the third, fourth, he meditates on God's word. Verse 6, on my bed I remember you, I think of you through the watches of the night. What do you do when you go to bed at night? If you're like me, you're a lousy sleeper. The watches of the night increase with age. And David says he's got himself into a pattern where um, as he goes to bed, uh, he remembers God and thinks of him uh, through the night. In the psalm, the word to meditate is not the Eastern idea of the emptying of the mind, sort of a decluttering of the mind, which might be a worthwhile activity. But uh, for Israel, uh, to meditate is more like to chew on God. There's a woman who uh, is now in Melbourne lecturing, uh, but she's a Hebrew scholar. And I asked her to verify this, that the, word, the Hebrew word for meditate has within it uh, um, an onomatopoeia, uh, namely a, a se- the word itself has a sense of chewing, like a cow that chews slowly on grass. And meditating is when you choose slowly on the Word of God. Cast, cast all your anxieties on Him. What does that mean? You know? What are my anxieties right now? How has He cared for me? And how would His care for me drive me casting my anxieties on Him? The Anglican Prayer Book says, Read, learn, mark, and inwardly digest. Meditate on his word. Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in your richly. That's last week. Eugene Peterson said, the reason why our prayers often fall flat or come out stale is because they have been uprooted from the soil of the word of God. What do you do when you go to bed at night? What will you do when you go to bed tonight? Tonight, What will you chew on? Maybe a verse of scripture. Maybe this psalm. Fifth, he, uh, insistence is in the Bible. <laughs> Never giving up. There's a, um, uh, a lovely uh, you know, movement towards God in Psalm 63. David is being hounded in the desert, but in the desert, David hounds God, and he discovers that God hounds him, his love, that is. But in Luke 18, uh, read out to us a moment ago, 
Jesus told a parable, a story, to show them they should always pray and never give up. And then he tells them this stunningly cheeky parable. I love the cheeky parables of Jesus. Do you want to do a series on that? Cheeky parables of Jesus? In Luke 18, you've got this widow, and she's pestering this curmudgeon judge. She pesters him until she gets her request. Um, She's powerless, but she goes to the one who's powerless powerful to grant her request for justice. Uh, and he says, in, in the story that Jesus tells, he says, because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice, otherwise she might come and attack me. <laughs> um, and Jesus says to his listeners, you listen to what the unjust judge says. Listen to him. Um, you know, we're meant to be the widow who keeps bothering God, you know, keeps attacking God. Uh, I love the parable because God is and is not like the judge. Uh, Jesus says, will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night and do it quickly? Jesus, of course, is saying, "You pray and don't give up. Sixth, uh, David sings. He, of course, verbalizes. He expresses his love for God. Your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. But verse 5, with singing lips, my mouth will praise you. Or verse 7, one of my favorites, I will sing in the shadow of your wings. That's something to meditate on tonight. Remember what we've been saying the last couple of weeks, you can't get at the joy until you get out the joy. You might not be very gifted at singing. I'm not. But there's something about pushing the the breath out of your lungs as you sing, Be Thou My Vision, in a few moments' time. And that song, the song we're about to sing, you know, I love it, Um, Lord, I Need You. The only downside to singing it is that I can't get to sleep at night every single time we sing it because it's the only thing in my head. That's not bad. We praise everything else in life that's worth praising. Why not praise God? With God, we're in joy territory. We need to verbalize our love for God. I love the psalm, the hymn writer, Come, thou fount of every blessing, and tune my heart to sing thy grace. My heart is out of tune now. I want you to tune it according to your grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. Amen? Lastly, he trusts God because God can answer, will answer, and does answer. David's in the desert. He's thirsty. His enemies, perhaps his son, is tracking him down. But he doesn't rise to strike. He trusts God. I cling to you, not my enemies. Your right hand upholds me, not my sword. And that's verse 9 and 10 is a bit troubling to some, but it's basically saying God will punish, not me. Uh, it's God's to revenge. He'll right all wrongs at the, in the end, at the, at the judgment. Um, but verse 11, the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him. God will do the judging. Uh, the lives will go down. But how's that for a peace that surpasses all understanding? How's that for resources to love God? How's, how's that for trust? We are being invited, I believe, in Psalm 63 into the life of another king, not David, but rather the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who entered our desert, tempted in the wilderness, resisted that temptation to drink the mud. The devil tempted him and Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We're being invited into the life of Jesus Christ, who drank the cup of wrath that I deserve, that I might be given the cup of life, the cup of water that this king gives for me to drink. Jesus said, let anyone who is thirsty, whose throats are thirsty, come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, from I think Isaiah the prophet, 
Rivers of living water will flow from within them. How's that for the endless immensity of the sea? So it's time to collect some wood, assign some tasks, and get praying. I'm going to pray, and then Greg's going to sing an item for us. Let me pray. Father, we come now as, as, uh, as the man in the desert, like King David in the desert, wanting our thirst quenched. We come as the widow, pestering, insisting on justice. You'll give us that justice and quickly. However, when you come, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? We ask that you'll find it here. We come tonight as tax collectors begging for forgiveness. We come as a little child to be embraced by a Father in heaven. And we ask you to teach us to pray. Father, we pray that we'll not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, we pray that we'll present our request to you. And we know that your peace, which transcends all understanding, will guard our hearts and our minds in the desert and in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.